A mysterious man sends an insurance salesman out on a call to a location that doesn't exist. When the man gets home, he finds his wife brutally murdered. After a police investigation, he is charged with the crime, found guilty, and sentenced to death. Today we have the story of the gruesome murder of Julia Wallace on the 138th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. If my show seems a little off today, it's because I'm living on the edge, drinking coffee that's not my usual brand. We'll see how it goes. So today's story is about a terrible, bloody murder that took place in 1931. There are many theories out there about who the murderer actually was. There have been many books written on the case, but I have to admit, much of my information, not all but most, was from one book, and I'll get to that at the end of the episode. But just scanning the internet, I found that you can find variations on this true story. And I always do my best not to take everything at face value, but still, I might be wrong here or there. Like I've said before, my goal with this podcast is to tell a good story, as truthfully as I can with my limited resources. I am my own researcher, writer, performer, producer, and editor. And I will not lie to you and say, this is the absolute truth, this is what happened. You see, from my house in northern Illinois, I can't possibly do the research that's required to tell a 100% accurately true tale. In fact, even if I had five years and unlimited resources to research this, I probably would still get things wrong because I wasn't there when it took place. There are at least three different researchers out there who claim they figured out this story, and each one of their books points to a different person as the killer. So what I attempt to do is, in about 15 or 20 minutes, give the listener enough knowledge to whet their appetite and maybe look a little deeper into the story themselves. Like, you know, going to a local library and reading a book on the subject or something like that. Maybe you can come back and tell me a thing or two that I didn't know or got wrong. So what I'm saying is from the limited resources I have, this is the best I can do. Well, you know, the snow has finally arrived in Chicagoland and it's beginning to get very cold. The problem is I still have to rake leaves. I'm actually hoping we get enough snow where it makes it impossible to rake leaves. Then I have an excuse. Anyway, I've got a hot cup of coffee and I'm ready to tell the tale of a true murder mystery that may have been the closest thing ever to a perfect crime. It's as good as or better than anything the best mystery writers can come up with. This podcast is part of the Psycon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash Psycon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. 
Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. Here in Liverpool in January 1931, Julia Wallace was bludgeoned to death in the front room of this house behind me and by someone who left no clues at all as to his or her identity. The man charged but acquitted of a murder was accused of planning the murder in minute detail, even concocting the most elaborate and, if true, very risky alibi. In a story of which even Agatha Christie would have been proud, the killing of Julia Wallace remains shrouded in mystery. Today's tale takes place in 1931 in Liverpool, England. Our victim is a 69-year-old Julia Wallace, who was brutally murdered one evening in her home. After a four-day trial and one hour of deliberation by a jury, Julia's husband was convicted of the vicious crime. The court clerk announced, You, William Herbert Wallace, have been convicted of murder upon the verdict of this jury. Have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon you according to law? Wallace simply replied, I am not guilty. I can say nothing else. The famed detective fiction novelist and screenwriter Raymond Chandler said of the case, The Wallace case is the nonpareil of all murder mysteries. I call it the impossible murder because Wallace couldn't have done it, and neither could anyone else. When William Herbert Wallace and Julia Dennis were married on March 21, 1914, William listed his age on the marriage certificate as 36 years old, which was the truth. Julia listed her age as 37. This wasn't true. Julie was actually 53 and had been lying about her age for years. She also lied about her parents, making herself sound as if she wasn't from a working-class family, but an upper-middle-class one. Whether William knew the truth about her age and family, no one is sure. All William's life, he was plagued with kidney problems. So much so, he had one removed. This prevented him from getting into the army at the outbreak of World War I. He was able to get a job with Prudential Insurance as a commission and collection agent through his father's influence. The couple moved to Liverpool about a year after their marriage. The best way I can describe William's look is he was a tall, thin, distinguished-looking man with round glasses and a mustache, slightly balding that gave him the look of, well, an insurance salesman. He played the violin and was a chess player. A Mrs. Florence Mary Wilson, who had spent three weeks at the couple's home helping to nurse one of them through a case of pneumonia, described William as a man who appeared to have suffered a keen disappointment in life. And of Julia, she said she was peculiar in her manner and dirty. She did not appear to have any enthusiasm for anything. And of the couple, she called them very peculiar and were not a happy and devoted couple. The trouble all started on the cold, windy evening of January 19, 1931. Wallace, who at this time was 52 years old, went to play a scheduled chess match at the Liverpool Central Chess Club. When he arrived, he found a message waiting for him. It seemed a man named R.M. Qualthrow had called about the same time he was leaving home and left a message. This was a bit odd because even though Wallace had a scheduled chess game, he was known for not showing up, even if he was on the schedule to play. 
Why would anyone leave a message for him there? Qualthrow talked to the chess club captain, Samuel Beattie, and told him to tell Wallace that it was regarding insurance. He asked if he asked for a William's address, but the only other man who knew where the Wallaces lived, besides William, had not yet arrived. So he asked Beattie to pass along a message asking if William would come to his home at 25 Menlove Gardens East the following night at 7.30 p.m. Wallace had never received an unsolicited call like this before and never heard of R.M. Qualthrow. But the year was 1931 and Britain was in a depression. Times were tough, so he decided to head out and meet this man in hopes of a large insurance commission. So the following night, he left home at around 6.24 p.m. and took the number 5 tram at 7.06. He repeatedly talked to both the conductor and the ticket inspector, both of whom he asked the exact route he should take to make his appointment at Menlove Gardens East. He was told by both men that they were not aware of such an address, but gave him the instructions of what tram he should take. It took three separate trams to get him to the area. Once off the tram, he talked to a woman he stopped on the street, a man at the tram shelter, another young man named Sidney Hubert Green, and Katie Ellen Mathers, who lived at Menlove Gardens West. Each one he asked about the address that he was supposed to go to, but none of them heard of Menlove Gardens East. There was only a north, south, and west, and none of those had an address of 25. At some point he remembered he was near a friend's home, Joseph Crewe. He went to his friend's home, but both him and his wife were out. Later, he met P.C. James Edward Sergeant, and again was told that there was no Men Love Gardens East. William told the whole tale of the phone call and how he couldn't find the address and such, and while they talked, Wallace brought up the time, saying, It's not quite 8 o'clock, and Sergeant replied, No, it's quarter two. Some think it was odd that he seemed to be going out of his way to talk to his many people as possible about his search for the non-existent address. When he arrived home, he oddly found both doors were locked, the front and the back, and when he started banging on the front door, his neighbors, the Johnstons, came to investigate. I've tried both the back and the front doors, William told them, and they are both locked. Then he asked them, have you heard anything unusual tonight? The three of them walked to the back door that led to the kitchen. When William tried it again, it freely opened. William Wallace slowly entered the house and the Johnsons stayed outside. A moment later, he came back to the couple and said, Oh, come and see, she's been killed. The three went inside and there, laying face down on the floor in the front room, in a pool of blood by the gas fire, was 69-year-old Julia Wallace. She had been severely beaten to death. Blood was splattered across the walls and on the furniture. They've finished her. Look at her brains, Wallace mumbled. John Johnson told his wife and Williams to wait in the kitchen while he went for help and not to touch anything while he was gone. He said he was going to get the police as well as a doctor, although it was all too obvious that a doctor couldn't help at this point. Within a half hour, groups of officers from the Merseyside police arrived. William had noticed that a cupboard that he kept the money he collected for insurance had been forced open and inside four pounds were missing. Other than that, nothing seemed to have been taken. Julia's handbag, a typical target for burglars, 
which included money and jewelry, was on the kitchen table untouched. Someone might have gone through the bedroom, but other than that, nothing seemed out of place. The police found one odd clue, and that was underneath Julia's body was a partially burnt Macintosh coat. Whose coat was it? The killer? Or was Julia wearing it when she was attacked? John Edwards Whitley McPhail, a lecturer of forensic medicine at Liverpool University, was called to the scene to act as the police's forensic expert. He concluded, due to rigor mortis, that she must have died at around 8 p.m., 45 minutes before William arrived home. Now, even back in 1931, the use of rigor mortis was known to be a poor way of judging the time of death, but that's just what McBale did. It was determined that she had been hit 10 or 11 times with a blunt instrument. Most likely the first or second blow killed her. That means whoever did the crime kept bashing her even though she was on the ground dead. The killer, they figured, would have been splattered with blood himself, probably soaked with blood. But there were no footprints, no blood outside the room, no bloody fingerprints, or fingerprints at all. The killer left nothing, no hairs, no fibers, no murder weapon. It was almost hard to believe that someone could have committed such a bloody crime and not left some sort of a trace, almost like he had cleaned the house before he had left. And there were no signs of a struggle. Other than the wound where Julie was hit, there were no other wounds that would have been there if she had fought back. It was assumed that she had bent over to light the fireplace when her attacker came up and hit her from behind, and then hit her again and again and again. Now, Julia was a suspicious-minded person that only let people into the house that she knew and trusted, and since there were no signs of a break-in, it was determined that she let the killer into the house. They figured it had to be someone close to the couple, so the police asked William for a list of those she might have felt comfortable letting into the home. He gave the police a list of 17 people that were all their friends. After the police conducted an investigation, they concluded that none of these people, including Richard Gordon Perry, who we'll get to later, would have done the crime. So suspicion began to fall on William Wallace himself. Talking to people who knew the couple, they said that they were strange and their relationship was described as strained and lacking in feeling. Julia was described as fastidious and peculiar. The authorities began to wonder if the strain of the marriage had gotten to William and maybe he had snapped, deciding to rid himself of her with an elaborate scheme. First, they thought, there was the mysterious phone call from a man who didn't exist inviting William to a home that didn't exist. When the police traced the call, they found it came from a call box on the corner of Rochester and Breck Road, about 400 yards from the 29 Wolverton Street where the Wallaces lived. And the timing of the call was in question. It took place 15 minutes before William and a man named James Card, a longtime friend who knew where the Wallaces lived, to arrive. Could Williams have called from the call box, putting on a fake voice, knowing that no one there would be able to give his address, therefore giving him a reason to be out during the murder? 
And then there was the constant talking to anyone he met about the address he was looking for. It was as if he was trying to establish an alibi. He talked to anyone who would listen. More than that, he was an insurance man who was constantly traveling all over and knew the streets very well. And even so, he should have had the resources to make a simple check to see if the address was real. And what about the strange circumstances of not being able to open the doors until the neighbors arrived, and then the door mysteriously opened like it should? It's as if he wanted someone to be with him when he discovered the body. There was a problem with the theory that William was the killer, mainly the timing. The police confirmed that he was on the tram to Menlove Gardens at 7.06 p.m., and there were witnesses that say they saw Julia alive between 6.30 and 6.45 p.m. And remember, the forensic expert said that Julia died at around 8 p.m. William couldn't have killed her at 8 p.m. That was fixed, however, when the time of death was changed to around 6.30 p.m., with no additional evidence to back that up. On January 26th, investigators began a series of tests to see if a man could commit the murder, clean himself up, and make the 706 tram. They used fit young detectives to go through the motions of a murder, then sprint all the way to the tram stop. They concluded it was possible to make it in somewhere between 15 and 18 minutes. But remember, these were young, healthy men, not a sickly 52-year-old with kidney problems. And could this weak, frail man really hit hard enough 10 or 11 times to cause a skull to be crushed? William Wallace's suit was examined for blood by forensic experts, but no trace of blood was found. The police decided that William wore only the Macintosh coat that was found under Julia's corpse while committing the murder, only dressing in his suit after the deed was done. Yet his hands and probably his face would have been covered with blood. But the examination of the bath and drains revealed that they had not been recently used and there was no trace of blood in either, apart from a small single clot in the toilet pan, the origins of which could not be established. William Wallace denied having anything to do with the crime during the entire investigation. But 13 days after the murder, he was arrested. The trial began in April 1931 and lasted four days. The evidence against him was purely circumstantial, and there was even a statement by a local milk delivery boy who was certain that he had spoke to Julia Wallace only minutes before her husband would have had to have left to catch the tram. But during the trial, William Wallace had a problem. He just came off like a murderer. During the trial, he rarely showed emotion, and when he was called to the stand, he spoke nervously but calm, never becoming flustered, even with harsh, aggressive questioning by the prosecution. Some think it was his demeanor that sealed his fate. Many thought the prosecution failed to make a case against him, and even the judge's remarks seemed to favor the defense. The jury deliberated for almost an hour, and when they came back, they said guilty, and he was sentenced to death. The court clerk announced, You, William Herbert Wallace, you have been convicted of murder upon the verdict of this jury. Have you anything to say why sentence of death should not be passed upon you according to law? William simply replied, I am not guilty. 
I cannot say anything else. But the prosecution's case was so weak that a month later, Justice Gordon Hewart of the Court of Criminal Appeal in London made an unprecedented move and overturned the guilty verdict. The conclusion at which we arrived is that the case against the appellant was not proved with the certainty in which is necessary in order to justify a verdict of guilty, the justice said, and therefore the result is that the appeal should be allowed and the verdict is squashed. Even Wallace looked bewildered since nothing like this had ever been done before, but he was allowed to walk away a free man. Unfortunately, or fortunately, if you believe him to be guilty, life was not good for him after being set free. He attempted to return to his old life, but too many people thought him to be guilty of the murder and that he had gotten away with it. One newspaper headline read, The chess player they couldn't checkmate. He was shunned by customers, subject to hate mail and physical threats, so much so he had to take a clerical job. He only lived for about two more years before he died at the age of 54 due to his kidney problems. So if William wasn't the killer, who was? It's possible that he hired someone else to do the dirty work for him. In fact, a 20-year-old Lillian Hall said she saw William talking to another man at around 8.25 p.m. But if that man he was talking to was the murderer, he was never found. Another possibility was that of Richard Gordon Perry, a young motoring enthusiast. He was a friend of the Wallaces and was on the list of people that William had given the police. Perry had been over at the Wallaces' home many times for tea. He had once worked with William at the same insurance company. But allegedly he had been asked to leave after it was discovered that he had been stealing money from the firm. And it was even thought that it was Wallace who turned him in. Also, Perry had a string of petty crimes on his record. Could he have been out to get revenge on William? Or maybe he was hired by William to kill his wife. In a 1981 radio documentary by Roger Wilkes called Who Killed Julia? John Parks, a garage attendant at the time of the murder, told the radio host that Perry pulled his car into the all-night garage the night of the murder. He seemed agitated, Parks said. He told Parks to wash his car down with a high-powered water hose. Being somewhat afraid of him, Parks did what he was told to do. Looking in the car, he saw a pair of bloody gloves. Perry told him, If the police got that, they would hang me. He went on to tell him of the disposing of an iron bar down a drain. After cleaning the car, he paid Parks five shillings and drove away. Parks was so afraid of Perry that he kept this a secret until after Perry died in 1980. First of all, we must remember that Parks was an old man who was talking about something that happened 50 years previously. And as we've discussed on other Coffee with Jeff episodes, the brain is not a very reliable record keeper. When I think about it, I think if he had enough sense to dispose of the murder weapon, why would he have kept the bloody gloves? Why wouldn't he have thrown those away as well? And why would he have trusted Parks, a man who could turn him in? Couldn't he have just washed the car himself? 
and at the time the police did a thorough investigation of Perry and concluded that he had a strong enough alibi as not to be considered. And what about the neighbors of Wallace, the Johnstons? Could they have done it? They had a key to the home, and they moved away the day after the murder. In a 2001 newspaper article, authors Tom Sleeman and Keith Andrews alleged that John Johnson was the real murderer of Julia Wallace. Apparently, they had talked to somebody who heard Johnson make a sort of deathbed confession or something. Of course, it is thought that he was suffering from dementia at the time, so who knows what was really going on there. But that's why this has been a fascinating case for over 80 years, because no matter how much evidence there is to point to someone as guilty, there's just enough evidence to say, well, he couldn't have done it. There's one more story that I want to tell. Apparently, when Wallace was on his deathbed in 1933, Sidney Schofield Allen, a junior defense counsel at the trial, was called to Wallace's bedside. And William's last words were, Well, we won, Sonny, didn't we? William Herbert Wallace, you are indicted, and the charge against you is murder in that on the 20th day of January, 1931, at Liverpool, you murdered Julia Wallace. How say you, William Herbert Wallace? Are you guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. Most of the information, but not all, that I used to write today's story came from two sources, the unretracted.com website and the book The Killing of Julia Wallace by John Gannon. And it appears to me that the article in Retracted is basically a summary of Gannon's book. So if you'd like to know more, I would suggest that book. It's filled with some great information, a lot more details than I could ever tell you here. In fact, there are many books about the murder you can find out there. One thing I found really fascinating is how many people have solved this crime. And when I say solved, I use those little air quote finger things. Roger Wilk says it was Richard Gordon Perry. Author P.D. James says she proved it was Wallace himself, but she also claims to have solved the Jack the Ripper case. There are more. There's a lot of theories out there, each person thinking they proved the murderer beyond a shadow of a doubt. I want to also point out that there are a number of other podcasts that have done this story as well. After all, it's one of the most famous unsolved murders next to Jack the Ripper. I have not listened to them for obvious reasons, but I might now, and you should. The more information, the better, right? And I would guess that most of them, if not all of them, do a better job than I. But whatever. Let's get into the ending credits. Now, there once was a man named Brecky who dreamed of a global media empire. He started with a podcasting network he named Psycon. If you want to help Brecky's dream come true, then just go over to Psycon Network's Patreon page and find out how you can help. Just go to Psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the show. 
Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? The latest edition of Pint Notes is called Everything is Nice. This is the only music, beer, and coastline show on the internet. Rebecca and Josh drink tasty craft beer and talk about new music they really like. Find out about this show and others at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, please send me an email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page that I'd love you to join. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and believe me, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a few stars or something. That really helps with the show's popularity. And remember, all the links that I used to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, to my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost the show on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting adventure. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay She was the dawn of Jeff's new day Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee, coffee. 